Today we're going to be looking at an interesting part of the Bible. And when I look at books, uh, I'm not like an avid reader, but I know leaders are readers, so I try to read uh, a little bit. And I think of Matt Clark wrote a book, and that's a great book. I think of some of the other books that I'm currently going through, uh, The Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Leader, just trying to develop more leadership skills. I think about anything John Maxwell ever wrote. Basically, he wrote one book and just reproduces it time and time again, and we all buy the copies. I think of the old school Charles Swindoll character study books, and if you want to learn about characters in the Bible, they're probably 20, 25 years old, but those books are just great. It helps you understand uh, the biblical character and, and how God worked in and through them. And so I think there's always there's good books that we can go to, but the problem with these books is they're written by humans. They're written by men and women like you and I that are sinful, that uh, may have mistakes in them, that may have problems in them. What is so great about our Bible is the author of life itself is the author of God's Word, is the author of the Bible. He spoke through people as they wrote it, and we're going to look at some interesting things that you probably would not hear normally in a church service that we're going to hear today. Um, but that's what I love about the Word of God. It's, it's not some book that someone's opinion that, that you know, may or may not be right. It's the Word of God. It's God breathed. It's God said, here's what I want you to have for instruction on this earth. And so I love what we're going to be looking at. Over the next few times I preach, we'll be looking at a series in the book of Judges. Judges is awesome. I referenced it last time I preached, and I thought about it. I was like, you know what? Judges is so awesome. I, I think next time I preach, I'm going to go with this. And so we'll be looking at some of the stories here, some of the judges. And just to give you an understanding of where the book of Judges fits in, um, we see that creation has happened and, and, and things are forming, and we see Father Abraham, uh, who waited a long time to have a son, but he had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. You guys are starting to do the motions, those of you who grew up in Sunday school. That's good. That's good. Abraham's come along. Moses has come along, and Moses was leading the people in the wilderness, and Moses dies. Joshua comes in, and Joshua leads them into the promised land, takes most of the promised land but not all of the promised land. And then we see that Joshua dies and no other leader was raised up to follow Joshua. And so we see that the 12 judges take the place. This is before the kings come around. This is before the, before the prophets come around. Um, but we see these 12 prophets, and we're going to look at six of them. Six of them are major, six of them are minor. What's the difference between the major and the minor? Well, the minor ones usually have like a verse or two written about them and says they judged for 30 years and that was it. We see the need for judges because back in chapter 2 of Judges verse 3, it tells us that uh, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Manassas, they all failed to do what God told them to do. And list many tribes that failed, but it goes in and says, verse number three, because you did not drive these people out, they will be like thorns to you. Their God will be like a trap to you. Kind of reminds me about our own personal life, where we don't drive out. We don't have Asherahs. We don't have Baals. But I'll tell you what we do have. We have little gods of pride in our life. We have little gods of pleasure in our lives. That we don't set up a little mantle there in our house, but maybe in our garage we want to make sure we have those toys that other people have. We want to make sure we feel good regardless if it's the right thing to do or not. 
So when we allow a little bit of these things into our lives, it cuts out God's blessing, what God's best for us in our life is. Kind of reminds me of my brownie illustration, but I will not be sharing that this morning just because it's a little nasty. All right, keep in mind during this time, you and I, we want to talk to God. What do we do? We symbolically come to the altar or we sit where we're at and we have the Holy Spirit that talks on behalf of us that we go right to God at that point. We have direct access to God right here, right now. It is so great living in the New Testament. New Testament is after Christ rose from the dead three days. This is the New Testament. Before that, people didn't have access to God like we have access to God. You would have to have one person representing the nation of Israel, which is God's chosen people. It's not America. You know, it's, it's Israel, God's chosen people. And one person would talk to God. Even the time of the priest, the high priest would go in once a year and talk to God. The rest of us commoners wouldn't have that opportunity to talk with God. And it says it's not until the New Testament, right around John 8, uh, Jesus says, listen, when I go, I'm going to send a comforter, I'm going to send a counselor to you, and, and you're going to have some great things, but I have to go for the Holy Spirit to come. And we have the Holy Spirit now that intercedes on our behalf. I always say when I pray for a million dollars, and that prayer hasn't been answered yet, but you never know. So I continue to pray for a million dollars. And the Holy Spirit takes that prayer and says, listen, God, I know you just heard Scott say this, but don't give him a million dollars because you don't know what he would do with a million dollars. He would buy a lot of stupid stuff. Keep him poor, keep him humble, and allow him to serve you all the days of his life. But the good thing we have with the Holy Spirit is we have access to the Father. Right now, we do not need to know if, if God is listening to us, but we understand that we have direct access to talk to God this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Those poor Old Testament saints. We have guidance where it tells us in Scripture, this is how we should act. This is what we should do. We have the Holy Spirit that kind of convicts us of stuff that maybe we don't necessarily know is sin, but the Holy Spirit will convict us and say, listen, you shouldn't be doing that. You don't raise your hand, and I'm not going to raise mine, but have you ever said something that was so funny, like it was great, and then you get home and you realize, like, oh, that was probably inappropriate, and I'm, don't raise your hand, or don't laugh because you're giving yourself up, and the Holy Spirit convicts you and be like, man, that wasn't cool. You need to go back and call that person and say, I'm sorry for that. That's the Holy Spirit, and I think it's so great that he keeps us on track, that he allows us to serve uh, the way that he wants us to, and if we are obedient to him, we'll be more effective in ministry in that way. Now we pick up the book of Judges. Guys, we're only looking at two characters today, uh, two judges. One of them had two verses written on them. The other had about 10 verses written on them. Uh, it's our good old characters of, of Othniel and uh, Ehud. Strong biblical names that um, hopefully today you're going to learn. So when you go to heaven and you see these people, You'd be like, oh yeah, I remember you in Judges chapter 3. And uh, we'll pretend like we knew all about them. But uh, Othniel and Ehud, and, and understanding what was going on at this time, Joshua, I believe Joshua's generation served the Lord greatly. They were into the promised land. They made these mistakes of not completely gutting out the land of, of other people. Um, but Joshua's generation served the Lord. But unfortunately, when Joshua's generation ended, the kids did not serve the Lord. And there's this verse that is repeated time and time again. It's four or five times even in the first two chapters. And here's the verse. It says, The Israelites 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Happens in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 18. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 19, it says, whenever a judge died, Israelites would act even more corruptly than their followers, than their fathers with the following of other gods. So during these 12 different judges, we see the cycle of sin, bondage, a cry for help, and deliverance. And deliverance came through one of these 12 judges. And it says the next time they would start this cycle, they would act even more corruptly, even more sinful than the generation before them. And so for 430 years, we see this cycle going on with the nation of Israel. And it reminds me of like the water cycle. You're always in some form of the water cycle, whether it's condensation, evaporation, or precipitation. It's always going through. It's always happening. And we see that sometimes that Israel would stay in a good spot for 40 years, and then they would be in bondage for 8 years, or 12 years, or 20 years. And what I don't understand is why they wouldn't cry for help after one day of bondage, after another nation came in and enslaved them, and made them work for them, why would they not immediately call out to God? Well, I'm glad you asked that question as well, because we're going to look at that a little bit. But here we go. Finally, you got your notes. You're going to have to do some work today, because if you have your bulletin, there's no fill in the blank. You're writing out the whole phrase, and some of them are seven and eight words long, so it's going to be a difficult day today. Here we go. Point number one, comfort brings laziness which brings sin. Comfort brings laziness, which brings sin. Listen, I am not saying comfort brings sin. Comfort's a great thing. The older I get, the more I learn about the importance of having a good pillow. Listen, when you're in college, you sleep on the floor, you take off your shoe and that's your pillow for the night and you wake up the next day and you feel great. After you get a little bit older, if you go to the dollar store and buy a pillow, you're going to pay for it. You're not paying for the dollar, you're paying for the chiropractor. You're paying for the pain that's going to come on the other end of that. And I believe buy good pillows. I also believe in buying good pairs of shoes. If you buy a $10 pair of shoes, you'll be at the chiropractor once again. Um, I believe in comfort. Comfort's a good thing, but I, I hope we all live in comfort. But I'm smart enough to know by the phone calls I get, by the emails I receive, that we don't live in comfort all the time. There's anxiety, there's stress. There's self-inflicted pain. There's problems that come our way. And comfort may not always lead to laziness, but comfort can lead to laziness. And I believe when we look at the nation of Israel, they got comfortable with themselves. They got comfortable that God is with us. We don't need to go to the temple. We don't need to serve him. We can serve him and some of these other cool little figurine gods. God's not going to leave us. God's not going to forsake us. We are the chosen people. God loves us. And I believe that comfort led to laziness. And their laziness, in in turn, turned into sin. That we're going to start doing things completely against God. We're going to ignore God. And because of God's love for the nation of Israel, he would not allow them to stay in sin, but he would send a nation to come and inflict pain on them so that they would come back and follow them. The first one we see here with Othniel, uh, Mesopotamia comes in for eight years and, and just rules over them and, and is in charge of them and making sure that they submit in everything that they do. 
And we see that, once again, I don't understand why they didn't call out to God immediately, but uh, eventually they did call out to God. And so we're going to look in the book of Judges. We are not under the Old Testament law. Please keep that in mind. So when we talk about murder today, murder is wrong. Say amen. Amen. All right, just because you disagree with someone does not mean you can go shove a sword in someone's belly, okay? Old Testament, right? We have the the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, which is great, but you're not allowed to kill people like the Old Testament, okay? All right, here we go. Judges chapter 3. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and worshiped Baals and Asherahs. And the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And he sold them to King Cushum, Rishathium, of Ariam, Naharium, and the Israelites served him eight years. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb, younger brother, and a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King Cushum, Rithathium, of Aram, to him, so that Othniel overpowered him, and the land had peace for 40 years. And then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. We see 40 years of rest. Guys, what is symbolic about 40 years of rest? 40 is a big number in Scripture. We see that. But what I see is significant about 40 years is a generation. 40 years is a generation. And so the things that the first generation experienced, these great battles, these wonderful things where God came in and moved, this one generation saw, experienced, and they had love for God because they experienced God working in their life. And that generation died off. And a new generation came up who didn't experience that, who'd only heard the stories. And maybe those stories weren't as frequent as what used to be 40 years ago. They didn't have that love for God. They didn't have that relationship with God. And therefore, they forgot obedience. So point number two this morning, it's not about you. It's not about you. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's not about you. Now write down, it's not about you. Because the way we're shaped, we want it to be about us. We want to go to our restaurant. We want to wear what we like. We want to have the job or the respect at our work. It's about us many times. But as we look at what had happened here, and this is one of the things that I want to do when I get to heaven. After I see Jesus and see family members and and see the streets of gold, see the pearly gates, see all these wonderful things, I want to go up to Joshua and be like, Joshua, you are a great leader. One, you should have raised up another leader, but that's beside the point. Why did the next generation not follow? Why do we see this sin pattern continue? Why why did you not just have a nation who was God's chosen love? Why why did they stop serving here and there? And I think it's going to be pretty easy to see that the parents didn't lead the way they should have. The kids didn't follow the way they should have. And that's why I think it's so important about always consistently being about the next generation. The next generation could be your teenagers, could be your youth, it could be your senior adults who still don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. 
The next generation is about other people. We are the only organization whose focus is not on ourselves. Guys, when we come here today, we want to learn about God, but the point of learning about God is to be sent out for those who don't know about God. The reason we're here today is to go out. We're not about ourselves. It's not about what we like. It's not about, man, they played my favorite song, which they haven't played since Jesus came into my heart in a long, long time, and I'm very upset about it, and Carrie will be hearing from me this week. It's about the next generation. It's about the next generation having the experience of Jesus Christ in their life rather than hearing the stories about the previous generation and how God worked in their lives. As we are turning our building upside down this week so that we can teach kindergarten through fifth and sixth grade the message of Jesus Christ. Guys, our old worship center looks like a a paint shop has exploded and there's stuff everywhere. There's stuff on the walls in the old building. I mean, it is just because we want people, we want kids to have an experience with Jesus Christ rather than coming in here and learning about the book of Judges, which the book of Judges is great, but it's probably not stuff we're going to teach our little kindergartners at this point. So we spend time, we spend effort, we're going to sing songs with motions, and we're going to have a great time so they can experience God. Our teenagers, they're not hearing about a mission trip that you went on 30 years ago. Our teenagers are going on a mission trip this coming Friday or Saturday. And they're going to experience probably some difficult experiences, some stressful experiences, but they're going to take notes and they're going to experience God in a different level. One, they're going to see how good they have it here, right? They're going to see how nice it is to have a 7-Eleven within driving distance at all times. They're going to see how nice your cupboard that we don't have anything to eat in there is. They're going to see how great they have it. But being away from family, being away from friends, being away from cell phones, I believe God's going to do a work in their life, and we're going to see that. It's not about you. It's not about me. Everyone point at me and say, it's not about you. Okay, no, a couple of you guys pointed, but really, just point at me and say, it's not about you. Not about you. Okay, not that much, Luke. <laughs> Goodness, Luke. It's not about me. It's not about the things that we get to do. It's not about the things of this church where we have a great sports program that we have or a great academy that they have the steel that's dropped off and they've already started pouring steel for or pouring concrete with raising up the steel. This beautiful building that we have, it's not about these things. These things become the tool for the thing that it's ultimately about, and that's the good news of Jesus Christ. Because, it says in your notes, but write it down, we're always one generation away. Guys, we're, all, we're always one generation, generation away from there being nobody in this building. One generation. If our generation, if the people in this building don't have obedience and don't do the things that God's called us to do, we'll be like many other churches that are out there that used to have impact that just don't have impact anymore. So we find tools to reach the next generation. And, and guys, God has closed some doors, but God has opened some big doors. And I'm excited for one of the doors that my wife has walked through. My wife has been a preschool teacher here for the last few years, and she just felt like uh, being with three-year-olds is fun, but that time has ended, and just praying to move on to something else. And, and we made that decision in March that, hey, you're going somewhere else. Like, it, it's not what you've been called to do at this point in your life. And so we sought out for her to find another job, and doors open here, left, right. Anyways, my wife will be teaching Bible, one day a week in the Olentangy Public Schools. 
And I think about that using a lot of the same curriculum that we use here at the church, the Gospel Project. She's not teaching character studies about how to have good morals. She's handing out Bibles and saying, here's the Word of God. Understand the Word of God. Because we're always one generation away. To think through LifeWise Academy, Olin Tangy's not putting it on, but the Constitution allows for one hour of religious training a week, and so they will pull them out to local churches, teach them the Word of God, in three of these different schools, eventually they'll be in all the schools in Old Tangy. Westerville's looking into it. Sunbury's looking into it. Uh, New Albany already has it, and there's some great ones down in Van Wert. But that's where we're at. It's maybe not about getting your kid to church here uh, because their parents will never bring them, but getting church to those kids, getting the Word of God. Because it's always about the next generation, and we're always one genera- generation away What stops us from being one generation away? Moms and dads, drag your kids to church, right? I was going to church nine months before I was born, right? All those those things. You know why? You know why my dad wouldn't let me play baseball on Sunday? Because church was important. He made an exception a couple times, but he says, listen, we're going to be in church. And listen, my kids, first of all, they wear khaki shorts and like a, a, a polo, and that's their dress clothes. And they have no idea what three-piece suits were for seven-year-olds back in the day. They don't even know what a Sunday night service is. You know what I'm saying? They, they have no idea what it was like. And my generation starts leaving the church, and I think about this. I was like, you know, there's a reason we left the church. You made us wear these funny clothes with ties, right? We didn't understand what the pastor was saying. And then when we'd ask questions, you took us in the back of the sanctuary downstairs, and you spanked us. There's no... There's, there's the reason we didn't want to go to church. You spanked us and made it like, yeah, anyways, moving back. Oh, thank you, McCoy. Next time someone tells you, you know, next time you tell me, you know, I didn't really care for that song today. You know my response? It's not about you. Next time you say, I didn't really care for that message. Now listen, if the word of God's not open, you can say, I didn't care for that message. But if the word of God is presented and you say, I didn't like that, that didn't speak to me, I'm going to say, it's not about you. And I would say if your spouse on the way home says, man, I didn't really care for those youth up there worshiping, what are you going to say? It's not about you. It's not about you. All right, here we go. That was Othniel. Usually I just want to do one character, but seriously, when there's only two verses about someone, we're going to move on to the next one. And this one is pretty awesome. This is Ehud. Ehud, the left-handed judge. Um, Once again, this is the Bible. Like, you don't expect to hear these types of stories in the Bible. But here we go. Judges chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Reoccurring theme. He gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, which the Israelites served King Eglon and Moab for 18 years. Story of Ehud, point number three. The call for help is always answered. The call for help is always answered. Our first call for help is when we understand that we are sinful 
and in need of a Savior. And when we call for help, that help is granted immediately. When Israel would cry for help, that was generally met as a nation. When they cried out as a nation, that need was answered. That call for help was answered. You know, we look at the city of, uh, of Palms. This was Jericho. There's another name for Jericho. We talk about Jericho. Jericho was the defining moment where God said, hey, go into the promised land. And Joshua went into the promised land. And going to the promised land, remember the problem was people were there. And so I imagine they, people could have heard about God and people could have just left that country, could have left that land. But more often than not, Israel had to come in and defeat those people. And the first time that, that God comes in and says, I'm going to be with you, I want you to go to Jericho, which is a heavily fortified city with walls all around it. You know, people could stand on the walls, throw stuff down, shoot stuff, arrows down. Like, you, you just couldn't take Jericho. And so they're starting probably with their biggest fight to start this conquest. And God says, listen, I want you to know that I'm with you. And so here's what we're going to do. The first six days, you're going to walk around Jericho just one time, right? Just walk around. Uh, and as, an, as a trained military person, I imagine these people are like, what do you, what, like, what's this walking going to do? Like, are we getting shape? What are we doing? Like, and then a seventh day, you're going to walk away, walk around seven times, blow a trumpet, and the walls will come tumbling down. Guys, that doesn't happen apart from God. And when we see that happen, that's what happened. They marched around seven times, they blew their trumpets, and the walls came tumbling down. God says, listen, this is a cornerstone for you understanding that I am with you. I will take on these battles for you. I will win these battles for you. And now we see this awesome, significant cornerstone in the nation of Israel being ruled by King Eglon. A place where it was an incredible victory for them is now a place of sorrow for them. Guys, it reminds me of these, these churches that are now little shops or little restaurants, or, or just storage. That church is all around. That the church closed down and no one wants the building, and so someone buys it up pretty cheap. And I, I think about that building there where people were one to the Lord. Tears of sorrow up towards the altar. Tears of joy as people received Christ. And I, I think about those moments. I think about the church I worked at in Michigan. In Michigan, 80 years ago, Detroit was the fourth largest city in all of America. It was the richest city in the whole world at one point. Two million people living in it, now about 500,000. And the church I worked at had 900 people going to it at one time. But with everyone moving out of the city, it was down to around 200. And so we had this big building where we took some of the seats out of the back so it didn't look so empty. There were rooms that we had in the building that were just sitting there where one time kids were learning about the message of Jesus Christ. And I, I, I think about these things and, and how difficult it would be to see another king ruling over Jericho. We see that they had cried out for help. Guys, if I was in the Old Testament, like I said, I would have cried out for help after day one. I would not have waited 18 years. But after 18 years, they cried out for help. I think they finally realized that what grandma and grandpa said about, uh, about their God receiving help from them, they finally did. And we see in verses 16 through 23, the judge uh, Ehud and what he did. So follow along, 16 through 23. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, 
the left-handed Benjaminite from the tribe of Benjamin. As a deliverer for them, the Israelites sent him with tribute, that's money, for King Eglon of Moab, basically saying, hey, king, thanks for ruling over us. Thanks for letting us serve you. Here's a gift. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. you got to love scripture. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it at the carved image of Gilgal and returned to the, and said to the king, Eglon, I have a secret for you. And the king said, silence! And all of his attendants left him. Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud, the judge, soon to be judge, says, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade. Eglon's fat closed in over it, and Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly. This is biblical. And the waste came out. That's in the Bible. Ehud escaped by the way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs rooms behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in because they just looked and found the doors upstairs were locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. Guys, there's a whole kind of scenario where no one was left-handed back then. So if you're right-handed, you always have the sword coming off. And so they always inspected, make sure you had no sword. Well, he was a left-handed man, so he had a little dagger on the left side and just basically shoved it in, went all the way in and uh, couldn't get it out. And then other stuff came out. So that's the story of, of Ehud, right? What do we learn from Ehud? Well, verse 28 and 29 says that they come after Ehud. And the nation of Israel struck down 10,000 able-bodied men. Verses 28 and 29, chapter 3. It reminds me of point number four. Victory is given, but it requires work. Victory is given, but it requires work. You know, I, I, please don't murder anyone. 10,000 people, a king, any of that. Victory is given, but it requires work. Guys, you may not see yourselves as victorious as you are, but I want to show you how Jesus views victory, how the disciples viewed victory, and how we should view victory. And we go back to Matthew chapter 18, and Jesus is asking his disciples, like, these are the ones that have spent time with him, these are the people that know him. And he says, listen, disciples, who do people say that I am? Like, I've been around teaching. I've been around healing. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples are like, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Uh, some say that you're a good prophet. And Jesus says, listen, that, that, that's good. I'll take those as compliments. But who do you guys think I am? And the first loud mouth to, to respond would be Peter, of course. He says, listen, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus looks at him and he goes, hey, Peter, you're correct, and you only know that because God laid that on your heart, and God showed you what that should be. You are correct. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And I imagine the disciples felt great about that. Listen, we are with the Messiah. The person the nation of Israel has been praying for and seeking for for many, many years, we are hanging out in the inner crowd with the Messiah. And Jesus says, you know what? A few minutes later, let's gather together. Guys, I want to tell you this plan I have for victory. 
Here's how we will receive victory. It says, in a few days, well, not in a few days, but in a little while, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And the disciples are like, yeah, Jerusalem, that's a great place. Like, yeah, we want, to, we want to be, that to be the focal point, like Jerusalem, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And it says, while I'm in Jerusalem, while I'm there, uh, I'm going to suffer many things. And the disciples are probably like, suffer many things? This is kind of weird, but uh, maybe it's like the, uh, the Rocky Four, where he goes up against the Russian, and you think the Russian is going to beat him down. And then all of a sudden, at the last minute, Rocky comes back and beats up the Russian. So Jesus is going to pretend like he's suffering a little bit, and then he's going to come back and, and beat everyone up. And then Jesus says, all right, the third point of this plan, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer a little bit, and then I'm going to die. And Peter stops him, like mid-sentence, says, no, this is not how it should be. Like, this is not how we will receive victory. We will go in there, we will rule and reign, and we will be the governors of different lands, and we're going to take over this land like it should be. And Jesus responds to him the harshest of anything that Jesus ever responded. He doesn't just say, stop it, or you're wrong. He says, listen, Peter, he says, listen, get behind me, Satan. He calls him, he calls him the devil. So he says, you don't know the plan that is about to take place. You don't know how we're going to receive victory. It's not going to be the victory that you think we're going to receive. It's going to be the victory that brings honor and glory to God through Jesus Christ. It's going to be the, the victory that pays the sin penalty that you and I have. Because there's no other way this has to happen. That's the victory that we're going to see. And Peter was thrown into his, his, his place because he didn't understand. And I think sometimes as new believers, we don't understand fully how victory is received. Victory as a believer is not received by being the most wealthy, having the most toys, by having the most promotions. Victory is received in many different ways. I think about the disciples. The disciples mostly died not because of old age, other than John. They died harsh, like harsh, gruesome deaths. None of them had any financial wealth of any, anything to do with. But we see those 12 went on to become 120, which were sent out and became millions and today are billions. But we wouldn't say the disciples were successful from a worldly standpoint. We would call them failures. But we see the victory that they have. And, and I want you to think the victories that you're having right now, you probably don't even realize. I want you to think of three people in your life that have helped shape and form you. I'm not talking about parents. I'm not talking about family. But three people who have stepped in and made an impact in your life or done something in your life. When I think about the three people over the years of my life who have made an impact, two of them don't even know. One of them knows, but the other two don't even know. And listen, when they get to heaven and they check the tape, they'll understand the impact they made. I want to say the victory you're having, you're probably not receiving a ribbon for it. You're not understanding the victory you're having. Making a difference in someone's life at work. You know, you may just be inviting them to church or telling them about Jesus or, or doing good things for them. You don't know the impact you're making in your life, in their life. And you may never understand that victory. What I want us to see is that we have victory, even though we don't realize it. And as we close out today, I'm going to have Matt come and just play a little bit. I want us to think about our victory. We received victory over death at the moment we accepted Christ as our Savior. It may not feel like it. It may not experience that we have victory over death, 
we have victory over death. We have victory in this life. And when I go back to the disciples and I think about the disciples and the victory that they had, minus Judas, I want to read the 11 disciples and the victory that they received. We have Andrew, crucified. A couple of these are biblical, others are historical, but we're looking at probably how the disciples died. Bartholomew, being skinned alive and crucified. James, beheaded or stabbed with a sword. The other James, stoned and then head bashed with a club. John, died of natural death, uh, basically because he was thrown on an island to die. Thaddeus, beaten with a club and then crucified. Matthew, staked and speared to the ground. Simon Peter, crucified, of course, upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the same way Jesus was crucified. Philip, impaled by iron hooks. Simon, crucified. And Thomas, martyred by thrust um, by a spear, thrusted by a spear. As we we look at these martyrs and, and we don't see victory in their life from a worldly perspective, but man, we see victory all over their lives from a spiritual perspective. And you may not have the things that you want, you may not have achieved the things you want to achieve, but I'm telling you, there's victory when you're working for the Lord. There's victory when you're doing things that will outlast this lifetime. The victory of picking up your kids on Sunday morning to bring them to church or your grandkids, that is a small victory that people will probably not see until you get to heaven and check the tape. 